Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 133. In this episode of the podcast, our awesome host, Matt Podolsky, is joined by Laird Lucas, who is the executive director of Advocates for the West, an environmental law firm based in Boise, Idaho. Laird and his team of lawyers and other advocates are not only dedicated to defending and protecting public lands and wildlife, but they do it for free. So stay tuned as they discuss what the environmental movement is up against and what Advocates for the West is doing to help. Hi, I'm Laird Lucas. I'm the executive director of Advocates for the West. We are a public interest environmental law firm based in Boise and with offices in Oregon and Washington, D.C. We are free lawyers for the environment. We represent conservation groups and activists defending our nation's environmental laws, protecting public lands, clean air, clean water, and wildlife around the West. Fantastic. How did, how did Advocates for the West come into being? So I actually graduated from law school a long time ago, back in 1986, and I uh, practiced law in California, but my heart was always with the environment. And as I looked at a future of either doing corporate law in San Francisco or, or fighting for the environment, it, eventually it really became clear to me that I wanted to, to do what my heart was and use my legal skills to protect the environment in the West. So I came to Boise in 1993. I worked with another outfit for a while, but we set up the first public interest environmental law firm or outfit in, in Idaho. Uh, there's others in other, other cities and other states around the West, but we're, we're specific to Idaho. And then in 2003, the senior lawyers, uh, Todd Tusi and Lori Rule and I, we, we left that other organization and founded Advocates for the West to be our own group. So we'd have our own autonomy, could make our own policy decisions. And uh, so we've been around since 2003. This is our 15th year of operations. Awesome. So what makes the organization sort of stand out from, from other groups? I mean, you mentioned there are other organizations that do somewhat similar work. Um, I mean, in your, you know, from your perspective, what makes Advocates of the West stand out? We are, of course, there are other fine environmental lawyers, and we work with them a lot. We, um, like I said, we're the only ones doing this in Idaho, and Idaho, you know, is 65% federal lands, a lot of really important places, and so we're, we've spent, you know, 15 years now really protecting special places of Idaho. We also work on a number of issues that other groups typically have not worked on around the West. Those include livestock grazing on public lands, uh, Cows can have a tremendous impact in sort of the high desert environment, fragile soils, dry places. People don't realize uh, the impact that cows can have in harming streams and waters and fish and wildlife. So we've been working on livestock grazing for a long time. Most groups don't do that. We've also worked on the sagebrush sea, as we call it, or the sage-grouse issue, the the sagebrush steppe ecosystem. That's the uh, sagebrush that stretches literally for hundreds of miles across much of the interior west. And that ecosystem, which has native grasses and forbs and other things goes along with it, uh, is home for over 350 species. But the sage-grouse is a very 
particular bird that relies on sagebrush for all of its habitat needs year-round and is under threat. So we've been working a lot on sagebrush ecosystem and sage-grouse. We've, we've, over the last 12 years, made that a national issue about the future of public lands in the West. It affects about 100 million acres in the West, so it's one of the conservation opportunities really of this generation to talk about protecting wide open spaces, intact habitats from things like oil and gas development. So those are a couple of our major issues. Um, we, we have a subspecialty of working on other special places, and by that I mean wilderness areas, wild and scenic rivers, national parks, national monuments. We spend a lot of time working on those kinds of areas around the West as well. Gotcha. So um, you mentioned Advocates for the West. You guys have been around for about 15 years now, right? Um, I mean, how's the organization grown since that time? Have you, do you feel like you've increased your capacity to really have an impact on these issues? Sure. We started off with a budget of about $300,000 back in 2003, and there was just three or four of us uh, and staff or administrative staff. Now we're up to about 10 people. Our budget's about a million dollars. So we've had slow and steady growth. Uh, we didn't have offices or staff in Washington, D.C. or Portland before. Over the last few years, we've added those. Having a base in Oregon gives us a lot more outreach to a lot of the West Coast issues. Having a base in Washington, D.C. allows us to deal with national political uh, trends and, uh, and try to... Uh, we don't really lobby, but we try to uh, monitor what's happening on Capitol Hill. During the Obama administration, we were very active in trying to work with the Departments of Interior and Agriculture and others there to, to do better policies. Now, under the Trump administration, we're in full-fledged fighting mode, defense mode, protect our laws, protect our special places from the threats that are there now politically. Yeah, and uh, you know that's definitely something that I think is important to touch on is you know, what's happening currently in the political world here in the U.S., um, I mean, certainly has an impact, I would imagine, in a lot of the, the types of cases that Advocates of the West deals with. I mean, how is that, maybe you can just go into a little bit more detail on sort of how that's like shifted your perspective. So there's, a, there's at least two or three really significant threats. One of them is at the policy level. And that's something the Trump administration is actively working on to roll back policies, change things that the president can do. And we are deeply involved in two or three of those right now, which is including defending national monuments. The Trump administration, the Interior Secretary Zinke have been doing a review to see about de-designating national monuments that prior presidents uh, designated or reducing protections. There's a lot of national work being done on that, and we're very much in the front of that. We're also working on the sage-grouse issue. Under the Obama administration, the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, and the Forest Service spent five years doing comprehensive planning to improve protections for sage-grouse in federal land use plans around the West, and now they're trying to roll those back, so we're fighting that. That's at the policy level. The deeper level is legislation, and Congress, of course, makes the laws. The president signs them, and we're doing the best we can to defend our, our bedrock environmental laws. There's things like the National Environmental Policy Act. NEPA says federal agencies should study environmental impacts disclose them to the public, and look at alternatives before they take action. It's a, it's a bedrock environmental law uh, that really keeps the public in the loop, and there's a lot of talk about trying to gut that. The Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, 
Many other laws are actually vulnerable right now to legislative rollback and sometimes in very secretive ways. Industry has gotten very good over the years at using appropriations riders, using little bits of language buried in long, complex bills to get the little pet projects they want approved. I don't know that we'll see wholesale gutting of the Endangered Species Act or Clean Water Act, but you can see lots of ways that they try to scale them back, limit them, don't make them apply to this area or that industry or whatever. So we're working on, on all of those levels. Awesome. Yeah, you know, you touched uh, on the public lands issue, which, you know, has sort of been pushed into the forefront of a lot of folks' minds, especially folks who, you know, care deeply about conservation and just about getting out into the outdoors and appreciating, uh, you know, these amazing natural areas that we have, especially here in Idaho. A lot of that discussion, at least since Trump was elected, I feel like is focused on like, oh, wow, like, well, now all of a sudden, you know, for years and years under the Obama administration, everybody's been focused on like trying to figure out like more designations, right? Like creating more national monuments. And now all of a sudden we're put in this situation where we have to defend those existing public lands. And I mean, that threat just I feel like all of a sudden, like people are now finally realizing like this is a very real threat. And we have to be on the defensive. So a part of my question is sort of along the lines of like how advocates has sort of navigated that switch or if you've like sort of seen that that happening. But then partly, I think, you know, one of the other things that's happened post Trump is I feel like all of a sudden a lot of people recognize the importance of attorneys and especially, you know, lawyers who do the kind of work that, that you do and, and all the attorneys and advocates for the, for the West do, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, like we didn't realize how, ba- how much we needed these people, you know, and now all of a sudden like, oh, like help us please, you know. It's, it's really true that most people don't like lawyers. Most people don't really like lawsuits. But when you need a good lawyer, when you need a lawyer, you want a good one. And when you have uh, real threats like to the existence of things like the public lands that we treasure so much, it, it becomes much more important. So, yeah, we're getting a lot more demands for our time and our advice these days. There's a lot of groups that for eight years under Obama, as you suggested, worked on Expanding protections, Mm -hmm. that's communications, outreach, politics. It's not legal defense, but now they want to play legal defense. And Mm -hmm. so we're, we're very much involved in trying to defend that. But I will say that I and, and our top staff attorneys, we've been at this a long time. I've been doing it for, uh, 30 years. I've been a lawyer for over 30 years and I've been doing environmental law for 25 years. We went through the George W. Bush years, Bush and Cheney, when they were trying to open up, and to some extent exceeded, open up the doors for oil and gas development on public lands. And so we've been through it before. The environmental movement knows how to play defense, and some people say they're not as good at offense as they are at defense. But these are challenging times. It's been shocking how quickly it's come upon us, the threats to things like EPA, their core mission, their budget, their staffing, the Interior Department. Many of these these agencies that didn't have enough money to do their job anyway and were, were being asked to take on things like planning for the future of climate change. Now they're being scaled back, kicked back, let industry run it. It's very troubling to see all of the industry folks that are taking charge of our agencies. And it's a very deliberate process. You saw it happen under Reagan. You saw it happen under George H.W. Bush. You saw it happen under George W. Bush. Industry knows how to get their folks into positions of control to set policies 
and to steer them to industry-friendly, you know, options. So our job is to speak up for those values that can't speak for themselves. They don't have a pocketbook, the birds, the fish, you know, the, the beautiful public lands, and, and, and ally with partners to do it. So we always work in partnership. We have clients. Our clients are conservationists, you know. Um, we have funders. We're a nonprofit, so we, we work with, with groups. And right now, for instance, we're enjoying a, a lot of support from the Patagonia uh, Foundation, which, you know, is a great company that makes money and then gives back to what, it's, what, it, what, it, what it really uses, which is the great outdoors. So mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a group effort, and we're just one part of it. Yeah, so it, you kind of touched on this, and, and I think it would just be interesting for, you know, folks to sort of hear about, like, what the process is like as far as, you know, when an issue is put in front of you um, or anyone on your team, you know, how do you go about sort of assessing the best approach and sort of initiating that process? I'm sure there's a number of steps that take place um, or measures you would take before actually um, filing a lawsuit. Of course. And and we start from, there's a lot of places to start, but as free lawyers, people want our help all the time. Sure. So we have to say no sometimes, mm-hmm. which is hard because there's things people care about that we care about too, but we just don't have the money or the staff or sometimes the laws to do it. We Advocates for the West has a very strong track record of success. We've, we've won or settled successfully a, about 85% of our cases. And that's because we pick our cases carefully and we do it again in partnership. So we tend to work with key client groups over and over again. We get to know their staffs. We know what their priorities are. We know what's coming up down the, the, the road, like in terms of agency proposals. We try to lay the groundwork with them. And if we have to go to court, the facts are in the record. We know what the laws are. That's, that's the ideal. Uh, but a lot of times, bad things just pop up, and you've got to go run into court quickly. The bulldozers or the chainsaws are coming out. That puts us in a really hard position because it takes a lot of work to go into court to ask them to stop something bad that's about to happen to get an injunction. You need experts and you need your briefing and the courts don't like it, but we do that as well. Um, These days, right now, under the Trump administration, they haven't actually taken as many steps as they talk about taking. So we haven't been having to run into court for injunctions quite yet, but it's coming up very soon. We see it we see it coming soon. There's going to be things like a lot more logging, supposedly to take care of fire risks, which is not scientifically based. It's the logging industry pushing it, but this administration will support them. We're going to see them uh, opening up a lot more areas to oil and gas, coal, other fossil fuel development that we were starting to succeed and getting put off limits. Um, So I expect to see a, a lot more of Uh, those kinds of quick court actions, having to go in and ask the courts to tell them no. Under the Trump administration, we've seen that the immigration folks and civil rights folks have had to do it. So far, it's not been as intense for the environment, but it's coming. I I guess I'm just wondering, you know, on on a base level, like, I guess I'm looking for, like, moments that stand out. Like, I mean, is is there, if I were to ask you, like, what your sort of proudest moment in court is, is there, like, a memory or something (laughs) that pops right up? There are a number of them because we have handled literally dozens. Of, I've probably handled hundreds of cases. But some examples are um, winning in federal court in order to prohibit uh, massive oil corporations from hauling 
what they called megaloads of equipment up the wild and scenic Locksaw River in central Idaho. They were going to the tar sands of Canada using, uh, taking refining equipment that was made in Korea, and it's massively large, so big that it's about the size of the space shuttle orbiter. They were going to haul hundreds of these loads of refining equipment up the curvy, wild and scenic uh, Highway 12 along the Locksaw River, and we teamed with the Nez Perce tribe. There had been years of fighting these things. The entire tribal leadership had been arrested the week before protesting one of these. The Forest Service would not shut them down, and the federal court came in and said no. So that kind of thing is where you can get the pivot moment in a long dispute where you can't get the agencies to do the right thing, but then a court can come in and do it. I've had many other great moments. You know, we've stopped dams on the Snake River and stopped them from doing irresponsible logging. Um, We've helped uh, propel things like these... uh, changes in federal land management to protect sage-grouse. Even though Trump is trying to weaken them, there's a lot better protections in place than there used to be. Um, and, and, and doing things like in the state of Idaho, this is a lot like civil rights. The state of Idaho, under the Clean Water Act, has a lot of authority to protect and clean up water, but it rarely does it. So we've had to resort to going to federal court to make the state of Idaho do better, to protect fishing and swimming in Idaho rivers and streams. Um, so there's a lot of those, those kinds of things. Another, another moment that stands out was under the Bush administration. They wanted to roll back rules to protect e- ecological standards on the public lands. It's called the Fundamentals of Rangeland Health. If you're going to graze livestock under the Clinton administration, you had to meet certain minimum ecological environmental protections. But under the Bush administration, they wanted to roll those back. We stopped those in court stopped them in on appeal. It even went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court wouldn't take the case. So we were able to, to fight those off. That's the kind of experience that we've had battling in adverse political climates and against industry-led uh, attempts to roll back environmental protections. And we're very comfortable going into court to do that kind of job. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, and, and you, you threw this number out of saying, you know, more than 80 of the cases that you've handled you've 80%. either won, yeah. Yeah, you've either won or, or settled favorably. I mean, that seems remarkable to me. I, I, I mean, is there like any basis for comparison? Like, is that normal for an outfit like you guys or are you just... Uh, I would say that many of our similar groups that are out there are, are like us with a pretty mm-hmm. high success rate because you get good at knowing whether you have a case or not. Sure. So, you know, we say no to the cases that just maybe people have passion in them, but you've got to have a law there. Mm-hmm. The law has to require the agency to do something. Our burden is to persuade the court that the agency badly violated the law or yeah. was arbitrary and capricious. So I, I don't want to take cases that I don't feel like I have a chance of winning. Sometimes you fight battles even when you don't think you, have, you can win because you've just got to fight them. Mm-hmm. But in general, we want to use our scarce resources to have maximum impact, and that's why I throw in settling. Like, we win or settle favorably our cases because a lot of times, either the government or the corporate lawyers, they know, too, that we've got a good case, mm-hmm. and they'll say, all right, what does it take to resolve this case? Mm-hmm. And we sit down and we work out something it may not be a 100% win for us, but there's always risk in any lawsuit. So if you can get something tangible out of it, you do. We had a, and I'll just keep talking, but we had a case a few years ago involving livestock grazing down in the 
garbage resource area of southern Idaho um, that was affecting a lot of vulnerable species, including sage-grouse. We won a court ruling that J.R. Simplot, his livestock company, one of the largest livestock operators in the West, um, they had to shut down grazing on a million acres because they hadn't, they weren't complying with the environmental laws. We won a great ru- ruling, but we ended up settling that case in return for long-term management concessions because the court ruling would have led us down one path, a lot more conflict. A settlement helped put into place you know, management changes that we thought would really serve the land better. So that's not... Uh, you know, a case where you you win, but you still settle because we're trying to to plan for the long term. For sure, for sure. So, you know, if you win 80% of the cases, then you got to lose 20%. And (laughs) I imagine that, like, because, you know, you're very sort of, you have this process and you're very sort of cautious about, you know, taking on cases that, you know, you can't win, that, like, those losses are probably particularly frustrating. They hurt, yeah. yeah. It, it, we don't feel good when we lose, and we try to learn our lessons from that. And sometimes it's because we get in front of a judge who just is not going to be sympathetic to us. Mm-hmm. You know, when that happens, you have the opportunity to appeal. It takes time, it takes resources, and you mm-hmm. can sometimes win it on appeal. But, yeah, when you lose those cases, and we've lost some cases that I really thought we would win, and I try to learn from those, but uh, yeah, it hurts to lose a case. I mean, I wonder if there are like situations where you know. Um, I mean, I know, like, I don't, I don't know if this is the situation like in anywhere in Idaho or like in any of the areas where um, advocates for the West operates. But you know, I mean, we've been hearing uh, uh, news stories about like you know, judges in, in certain districts are are voted. Um, you know, they have to go through a, a, a voting process to get elected. And like sometimes, you know, very partisan, um, you know, extremely conservative people end up um, in these positions. Right. I mean, I guess I just I wonder if you've ever encountered a situation where you're like, oh, we lost that course, like because the system is corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see it sometimes. It's mainly state courts where mm-hmm. judges are elected. And that is true of Idaho. And there was an occasion here I fought for water rights for wilderness and other areas in Idaho for a long time, and the Idaho Supreme Court had a ruling about federal water rights in federal areas that ended up getting a justice unelected from, you know, voted out of the Idaho Supreme Court. Very political process. The federal courts, you know, federal judges are appointed for life under Article Three of the Constitution, so they're nominated by the president and approved by the Senate. That means, you know, if Barack Obama's going to put people on the, on the bench... He's got to get them through a conservative Congress. So there was a lot of Obama appointees that are very moderate Mm -hmm. on the bench, and they may not be as friendly to us on the environment as we would like. In the current environment, with Republicans in control of Congress and Trump in charge, we're very concerned that the caliber of federal judges being appointed is going to go down because they're going to choose very ideological folks. And that could, that could affect a lot, of, a lot of courts around the nation. And it's of, it's of great concern, actually. Mm. You know, you, you, you've definitely touched on, you know, sort of the, the controversial nature of the work that, that you do and, and Advocates for the West does. I would imagine that you know, it's fairly easy to to make enemies when you're you're filing lawsuits here. I mean, I I, I guess I just wonder like, um, you seem like a very personable guy, a very friendly guy. Like, like how how do you deal with situations like that? Right. We it's sort of 
love the sinner but hate the sin, you know, whether we're taking on loggers or miners or ranchers or whoever, I have a lot of respect for people who want to make a living off the land. I understand that. I don't think they're bad people. Maybe there's some evil people out there. They're certainly greedy people. Mm -hmm. What we see a lot is corporations playing the system to get advantage from how public lands are managed. And there's certainly a long history in America of people profiting off the public lands, privatizing them. Mm -hmm. And that's our job is to fight all of that. I don't want to pick fights with people, but I want to pick fights over causes and over issues. And, And really what we do is fights over legal principles. I mean, these are laws that Congress passed. What we do is we enforce laws that Congress passed in the, sometime in the past, mm-hmm. and, and it's our job and our role under the laws they passed to be able to enforce them. So I take a lot of comfort in knowing that, A, with our track record, and B, the way the system is, we're, we're really in the right. You can disagree with our values. I may disagree with your values, but I'm not going to belittle you as a person. And so I think that respect that you pay people translates off into our reputation and our work, that we're not going to go out there and just shoot our math out and, and, and badmouth people and try to put them down. What we're going to try to do is uphold science and the law and make agencies do what they're supposed to do. And so it's kind of hard to get angry about that, I think. Yeah. I don't like conflict, but conflict is part of our system. And the legal system, there's winners and losers. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so... It is one of the tools in the, um, that, that is available to conservationists who want to protect our earth, protect nature. It's one of our tools. It's not, not, not all of them by any means. What you do with communicating and, and talking to people is really what's more important. But I like being able to be the backstop that when you really need to go to court, there's somebody there that's willing to do it for the, for the conservation movement. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's a really good point you brought up, is that there are a lot of tools that we use to address conservation issues. And, and um, yes, you, know, you, hold, uh, you have this whole toolkit, and I have a totally separate toolkit. And you know, sometimes one of those toolkits works better for a specific situation than another. You know, I, I, I guess I wonder, like, because um, you know, I've encountered situations like this um, on you know, projects that I've been a part of, conservation projects I've been a part of, where there's actually disagreement within the conservation community over what the best approach towards addressing an issue is. And you know, I've seen conflict over, you know, between conservation organizations where you know, one organization wants to approach an issue from a legal perspective, and there's another organization which has the same end goal, but just thinks that, like, no, this issue shouldn't be addressed from a legal perspective, you know, we should be like reaching out to the other side and like work, you know, trying to like, you know, bring them on board rather than trying to like force them from doing something um, through a legal route. I mean, I guess I wonder if you've ever encountered like a situation like that working with advocates. Many times. Yeah. That in fact, what you describe is actually pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's always a real struggle to figure out you know, what you do then. Because the voices that say we shouldn't be filing a lawsuit, we should be talking, it's really important to listen to that because if you do file the lawsuit, you may lose the opportunity to talk. So if somebody's saying, hey, I think I have the ear of so-and-so, or if, we, if we're able to do a communications, um, you know, approach for the next year, it might succeed much better than a lawsuit. We listen to that a lot, and we do try to use lawsuits as the last result. Uh, uh, last resort. But I will say that 
we are a small group and we tend to ally with small groups too. We tend to be more on the left side of the spectrum, if you will. The big major national groups are better positioned to try to influence legislation, to do sophisticated national media campaigns, to do that kind of thing. The scrappy fighting groups who are out on the land and see the bad things happening, they tend to be our clients and and we tend to respond to that. But we want to listen carefully and, and we don't want to file a lawsuit if somebody legitimately tells us this is going to screw up something we're doing. And we pay a lot of attention to what could be the political blowback from a case. Uh, one question we ask, you ask, how do we choose cases? And, and uh, one question we ask is, you know, who's, who's uh, ox may be gored by this? Like, who, who, who are the people that are really affected by this? And how could this spin out? It can, it can be hard to, to think about that, but we try to do that. Mm-hmm. We had an example recently over Point Reyes in California, Northern California. Point Reyes National Seashore is the only national seashore on the West Coast is part of the national park system. It was set up by John F. Kennedy in the early 60s. Then a lot of local folks raised $50 million to buy out all the ranchers at Point Reyes, and they were given lifetime leases to continue ranching there. Those are now all way expired. Livestock grazing has been going on in the national seashore since then without any environmental analysis. And it's caused a lot of damage. So we were approached by folks who were involved in raising the money back in the 70s to buy them out. They can't believe the ranchers are still there. And we filed lawsuit, but only after we heard from a lot of major national groups, we shouldn't be doing that. It was too touchy politically. We're going to set off a firestorm. So we were very concerned about that. Um, That lawsuit was pending for two years. We just resolved it with a settlement. It's another one that goes into our favorable column. That settlement requires the Park Service to spend four years doing a public process, evaluating the environmental impacts of grazing, so everybody can weigh in on it. You know, there's no, like, final result, but it's opening the door for what could be a long-term resolution to limit or get, or get rid of, of ranching in that point raised National Seashore. That's what our clients want. Other conservation groups think there's a future of working with the ranchers, but that'll all be sorted out over the next few years. At least now there's a process to evaluate it. Right. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. We've talked, you know, quite a bit about sort of like the current uh, situation that we're in politically and what that means for the work that Advocates for the West does. Um, You know, I I guess I'm just wondering, like, you know, I'm sure you guys put a fair amount of, you know, thought into just, you know, looking into the future and trying to sort of anticipate, like, you know, what future needs will be for the type of work that you guys do. What does the future hold? I mean, if we look five, ten years into the future for advocates, I mean, where, what direction do you see the organization moving in? Yeah, so our, our real, you know, when you get down to it, what are we really about? It is about public lands. And public lands are mainly in the American West. And within those public lands, of course, there's a, a variety of issues you could look at. It might be the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest, old-growth forest. We know we're not going to work on that because other groups are working on it for sure. We're looking at for the areas where our expertise and our history can combine to keep protecting these areas. We have long-term commitments to places like the Clearwater Valley, now places like Point Reyes, uh, that we'll continue fighting on. So what I see is probably a resumption of the timber wars through the 90s, the 80s and the 90s. There was 
so many battles over logging on public lands. Way too much uh, cut was getting out. The, the, it was not sustainable. And that's what led to the spotted owl controversies in the Pacific Northwest, but it also had controversies here in Idaho. I suspect we're going to see that coming back again. We're going to have a lot more fighting over what is appropriate logging in the face of climate change, all of these fires, the droughts, the beetle kills. There's going to be a lot of push to log a lot more places that really shouldn't be opened up. And I can see that becoming an important part of our work in the future. I think taking on fossil fuel uh, development on public lands will definitely be uh, a big priority for us over the next five to ten years. Uh, Oil and gas prices go up and down. Coal, I believe, is in a long-term downward spiral, but they're fighting to hang on. There's going to be a lot of industrial emphasis to open up public lands for that, and we are going to fight that tooth and nail. I... I don't care what the Trump administration tries to say about climate change. It is very real. The agencies know it. The scientists know it. To deal with climate change, we have to address what will happen to wildlife. Where are the refugia? Where are the places to, the the best, most important places to protect moving forward into the future? There's a lot of mapping of that. GIS scientists know the answers. If you're thinking about fish or birds or whatever, and Idaho has a lot of that. The high elevations of Idaho, central Idaho, are really important to the future of a lot of fish, a lot of birds, a, wa- a lot of wildlife in the West. And so we're going to be doing all we can to protect those. You know, whatever the legal and science strategies are, that's a lot of work we're going to work on. We work a lot on rivers, water flows in rivers, uh, Columbia River, Snake River, the Snake River dams. Those things are very bad for the ecology of the area. They're really not necessary economically. Politics won't allow the taking out of the dams yet, but you've got to keep the pressure on. We'll definitely be working on that issue over the next five to ten years. Things like livestock grazing, which is ubiquitous across the American West, can be improved a lot. But it also has a lot of political power. We'll continue finding ways to sort of highlight the damage that grazing can do and promote better grazing regimes. Part of that is through voluntary grazing retirement where you actually pay ranchers not to graze. There's starting to be market tools and institutions to do that. We've been very much working on that. So those are the kinds of things we'll be working on into the future. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, it's, it's good to know that there's a, a team of kick-ass lawyers here uh, <laughs> fighting for public lands and all these other important issues uh, surrounding conservation uh, here in the West. Um, you know, just as a final note, I guess, you know, I, I think it's important to remind folks who are listening to this that, that Advocates for the West is a nonprofit and you guys rely on um, donations um, for support and for a lot of the, the, the funding that you guys use. I mean, and, and to remind folks that, you know, as you said, um, you take on these cases for free. Right. <laughs> That's right. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, we are a, a nonprofit, just like others, and we've got to be able to pay for our time. We can't do it unless we have funding for our time. So those individual donations, people who do monthly support for our work, are really important for us. That's really our bread and butter of support. And it's not just the money. It's that, that partnership thing that I'm talking about where you know that other people care and, and share those same values. It creates a community. Idaho's a small state, so it's nice to know 
you know, within our small state, people who really have a passion for this. And, and as you get out broader into places like Oregon and California, obviously there's a broader public of support, but our voice is less well heard there. We're much more prominent in Idaho because it's a small state and we're based here. But I really appreciate what you're doing and thanks for, for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, I mean, thanks for talking to me, but also thanks for everything that you do. Thank you so much. So that was Matt's interview with Laird Lucas, who is one of the amazing lawyers behind Advocates for the West, a nonprofit on a mission to serve and protect the West's most precious natural resources and kick ass in the process. If you want more information about Advocates for the West, head on over to advocateswest.org. That's advocateswest.org. All of the resources described in this episode can be found in the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC133. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to the EOC podcast on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Our theme music is by The Humidors. (laughs) 